Australian Broadcasting Media for Radio Sydney FM and we're also available on iTunes. I'm Rupert Guinness, your solo host for this week. Aaron is still over in the, in the United States heading towards Virginia and then towards Richmond where the World Road Race Cycling Championships will be held in the last week of September. But we'll be touching in with Aaron a little bit later on in the show because he's been immersing himself in the world of BMX and he's going to be having a chat to one of their young and up-and-coming stars in the world of BMX who you never know we could be hearing about in years to come and why not on the road a lot of our famous uh, or most successful road racers began their careers in BMX anyway that's for later as I said we've got a heap on for this episode episode 8 of What A Ride some of the people we're going to talk to in this episode are John Trevorrow who's one of the uh, foremost personalities I would say of Australian cycling not for his history as a cyclist, which was very impressive. He won the Herald Sun Tour of Victoria three times in his career. He also raced in Europe. But now he's one of the foremost race directors in Australian cycling. He's also a very well-known commentator of the sport, and he's certainly a very, very colourful character. His nickname is Iffy. We'll let you sort of figure that out until we get back to hear from him. We're also going to be chatting with one of my erstwhile colleagues at Fairfax Media, Daniel Lane. He's a sports journalist who's been in, around the traps for a fair amount of time and uh, we've sort of, uh, you know, uh, often engaged in some good discussions in the office there and talked about a lot of different sports because we both follow a lot of different sports. He actually caught up with uh, the former two times ITU World Triathlon Champion, McKelly Jones, who's over in the United States. He's written a fabulous piece for the Sun Herald and uh, we speak to Dan about some insights of, from McKelly, what she's up to in the United States and also we talk about the Sydney 2000 Olympics where she won the silver medal and we sort of went down memory lane a little bit there uh, as the sun was setting over Sydney Harbour as we chatted. So uh, Dan's got some great insights and we also you know, talk a little bit about boxing, some cricket and he reveals as to who his favourite cyclist is. Further in the show, as I said, uh, we'll catch up with Aaron. Um, we're also going to chat with Phil Anderson. Now, we spoke to him in the last show, but this time we don't talk about bike racing so much. We talk about cycling tourism. The market is expanding as the sport's expanding. And Phil has his own company, and uh, he talks about some of the ins and outs of uh, the pros and cons of, uh, of running a business. It can be like herding cats, I'd imagine, out there with uh, so many people out in the roads of the Tour de France and other big races where these tours go to. But Phil also talks about the industry in general, which happens to be, I think, one of the boom industries within cycling and how different touring companies tailor their tours to suit specific needs. Some you know, companies like to go for backpacker-type um, uh, markets. Some like to go for the five-star deluxe, port cuisine, fine wine, with a little bit of peddling in between. It's everybody's you know, flavour is... is uh, is met there, and uh, so certainly that'll be an interesting chat. But uh, as I said, it's uh, been a busy, busy uh, period of sport at the moment, certainly here in Australia. 
we're getting right into the thick of uh, footy's final season in both the AFL, Australian football, and the NRL, National Rugby League. Meanwhile, in the world of rugby union, uh, one of the rounds that I do cover for the Sydney Morning Herald, all eyes are to heading towards the United Kingdom for the Rugby World Cup. Now, Australia's national team, the Wallabies, they're taking a long road there. They're heading there towards uh, or through the United States, where they've just finished a two-week spell of training, including a one-off test against the US Eagles, which the Wallabies won 47-10. to 10. Now, as you remember, a couple of episodes ago, we spoke to the Wallabies captain, Stephen Moore, about their the campaign, their hopes, their, not concerns, but the areas or the challenges that they'll face. And uh, I remember Stevie Moore actually uh, recalled how he uh, was able to draw on uh, you know, the, the way that uh, cyclists ride, particularly Richie Port. He used that as an example of how Richie Port had a huge role in saving Chris Froome in winning the Tour de France on that last mountain stage up to the top of Alpe d'Huez. So, you know, we wish the Wallabies all the very best there in the United Kingdom. Um, and I've, I've been speaking to some of their players uh, in the days since they've been in the US, and uh, it sounds like their coach, uh, local Kuji resident, uh, Michael Checker, has been absolutely flogging them as well. So one thing is certain, I'd say, is they're going to be very, very fit. Anyway, so uh, elsewhere in the world of sport, all Australia has been uh, following the famous, or not famous, the fantastic story of Jared Hayne, the former NRL rugby league player from the Parramatta Eels, who has secured his contract, or he got onto the final 53-strong player list for the San Francisco 49ers in the NFL. Now, uh, as soon as that happened, all the attention was then on whether he would actually get to play for the 49ers in their NFL opening round against the uh, Vikings. But uh, whether he makes that, whether he was going to make that or not, you know, the achievement he's already done is absolutely fantastic the, uh, to, to not just code swatch switch but just to actually almost change sports um, so much has been written about him so much still will be written about him so much will be said so much will be heard uh, but whatever happens from here on in I think the achievement he's done he's, he's made already is, is uh, absolutely phenomenal um, it was interesting to hear just uh, oh with a, with a, just with a day or two out from hearing whether he would make that first uh, game or not, he was just starting to get fed up a bit with all the attention, though. You can imagine that, can't you? He's trying to um, earn the respect of his teammates. He's certainly done that on the field, but the last thing he wants is to be seen as a, as a headline uh, grabber. And he's certainly not grabbing the headlines, but just the natural interest of, of, of his story has uh, attracted so much media attention. And not just from Australia, too. He has been the pre-season story of the NFL. Uh, we've spoken to Aaron about that since he's uh, been over there in the US. And you know, Aaron's spoken very highly about uh, how uh, Jared Hayne has uh, managed to handle all this on the field and off the field. But anyway, rest assured, I'd say Jared Hayne uh, is a name we're going to keep on hearing about uh, for the rest of the year and maybe many more years to come. Now, as I said, we've got a great show lined up for this week. Uh, you know, when we spoke to John Trevorrow, we started off, or well, the intent was just to talk about road cycling in Europe, because obviously we've got the Vuelta a España uh, has just approached its end, its final stages, and the Oracle Green Edge team has done superbly well there, uh, extremely well, in fact. 
But when we spoke to John Trevorrow, we also spoke to him just a little bit, oh, literally an hour before the uh, Amy's uh, Criterium and the Amy's uh, Road Race, which was the day after, um, which is an NRS women's race named after Amy Gillette, who was tragically killed in 2005 when she was in Germany with the Australian team. Um, but uh, as tragic as uh, her death was, one good thing that was created from it was the Amy Gillette Foundation, which was all about road safety, creating awareness of uh, cyclists and drivers uh, looking after each other, keeping an eye out for each other, under the uh, motto of a metre matters. And certainly that campaign or that initiative is now an organisation has made great inroads into uh, road safety awareness, even though it is still a problem, uh, we can never be complacent. But anyway, John Trevorrow is organised, the race director of that uh, two-day event, which was held down in Lawn in Victoria, and also on the second day was the Amy Gillette Grand Fondo for all the uh, cyclo-tourists uh, who want to get out there and ride. So it's a fantastic initiative. Um, so we spoke to John, we caught up with him, we spoke to him about what he was doing down there in Lawn, and also we spoke a bit about, or quite a lot about, the Vuelta España, and also some more about the World Road Race Championships, which uh, Aaron will be at later on. In any case, let's just have a listen to see what John had to say. Well, I'm talking now with one of Australian cycling's uh, most well-known personalities. He's a three-times winner of the Sun Tour of Victoria, or now the Herald Sun Tour of Victoria, I should say. He's also one of Australia's most prominent race directors, and uh, he's a very well-known cycling commentator. His name is John Trevorrow. I've got him on the line now. He's down in Lawn in Victoria, where he's uh, the race director for the Amy's Criterium and the Amy's uh, Road Race uh, on the next day. Uh, and there's also, at the same time, the Amy Gillette uh, Grand Fondo, uh, named obviously after Amy Gillette, who tragically was killed uh, a number of years ago in Germany in 2005 in a training accident with the Australian team. But uh, John Trevora, welcome to What a Ride. Yeah, Rupert. Uh, thanks for having me on, mate. Yeah, look, it's uh, like it sounds like it's all happening there. I know someone's just delivered you a uh, a hamburger. I guess it's with the one of the perks of the job of being race director. You uh, get to have uh, someone get you all your food, your domestic, so to speak. I'm sitting in a little uh, a cafe overlooking the uh, course, which is all closed off, and on beautiful lawn on the Great Ocean Road. There's a huge crowd because there's 5,000 doing Amy's going for Fondo tomorrow, and they've all got to come in today to sign on. So, yeah, you know, they're all here to watch the, the race for the an hour's time. Gee, so we've got you at a very special moment when, for a race director, this could be like uh, the time you should be in your locker room, so to speak, preparing for the uh, for the big event. Oh, a race director of a, of a crit's pretty easy. The, uh, the commissaires have to do all the rural uh, side of things, and it's um, yeah, fairly safe with the, with the race clothes. But look, it is a wonderful event, and um, you and I both remember that tragic day when we heard the news that, that Amy was killed in Germany, because we were on the tour, but we weren't that far away from, from where it happened, actually. And so it sort of rocks the whole world, and it's wonderful that something positive has been able to come out of that terrible tragedy. You know, the Amy Gillett Foundation, what they're doing in awareness of, of road safety for cyclists and motorists and better to cohabitate uh, on the road uh, has been fantastic and um, this is a wonderful event. Yeah, like you've, you've seen the event grow to where it is now and uh, and also the Amy Gillette Foundation, uh, you know, uh, sort of develop as to where it is now. I mean, it, nothing will ever bring back Amy, we all know that, obviously, but uh, it's, it's really is a fantastic initiative that uh, so many people have got on board, and probably more importantly, I think the message is getting out there that a meter matters. 
Yeah, very true, mate. You and I both ride a bike, uh, although not very occasionally <laughs> for me, and uh, maybe a little bit more for you. But uh, yeah, getting that, uh, that that message across is pretty important. Now, t- tell me with the uh, with the racing that we're expecting. I mean, the the, the criterium it's a it's a hard fought race, and also the road race. It's part of the National Road Series in Australia. And how, how, can you explain a little bit about how that's developing uh, the road series itself? Um, and where, how it can develop, and, and and the importance of this event in the scheme of that. Well, yeah, the National Road Series, uh, you know, there's points for all the different races, and there's been more and more women's racing coming on. Uh, I can actually see this race growing to an international race because to get, to get a to be able to race on this course, which is just spectacular with fully closed roads, you don't get that uh, very often. So I guess it's going to an international uh, race. But, you know, we've got, um, there's 50, I think 56 ladies staying today in the grid. And what they've done to make it interesting, they've put, um, there's four sprints, all with time bonuses, 15 seconds down. So, and then 30 seconds for the for the win in the grid. So it really makes it uh, pretty serious. They can't just sit back and wait for the, for the hard stage tomorrow. They've got all get in amongst us, try and get some uh, time bonuses. But over the whole season, all the major races have points uh, to add up, and uh, you know someone will try and uh, to, to, to win the overall NRS champion. And also, it's important for the teams to become the number one team uh, in, in the NRS. And of course, it's a separate women's uh, and men's series. But it's, it's really the, the breeding ground for, for, for the youngsters who want to try and make it in a big time and get over to Europe. So they get themselves noticed on the NRS uh, series and uh, hopefully get into the, the, the major teams. Now, uh, John, with your experience in racing, I mean, uh, to tell our audience that you did race over in Europe yourself, you did race in the Giro d'Italia, um, you, you know what's required of uh, of a rider to make it in the big uh, in, in the big arena of racing in Europe. I mean, uh, do you see talent... Uh, immediately in in the NRS that you say to yourself, gee, this this person you know really does have it to to become a, a European based road racer. Look, I, I do. I don't see many of the, uh, uh, the NRS ladies racers, and uh, unless they're connected with the guys. And this is my first time as race director. I'm an NRS ladies race. I'll probably be able to show you a lot more after tomorrow. <laughs> but I know that the guys, the standard of racing has just been quite spectacular. I was race director of through Tasmania and through Gippsland and Melbourne Water last year. I was so impressed with the with the standard and the quality of, of the guys and some of those are now getting pro contracts. Then we just have to see guys like Richie Paul. Nathan Hass, uh, you know, Steel Von Hoff, um, just just wonderful guys who, who get that opportunity to, to show the stuff. And now they're racing uh, uh, in the pro tour. With the, with the ladies, I reckon they've even got a better opportunity because I'm going because the dip's not quite as, uh, as high, even overseas. That the chance, if you've got that ability, you can get it come across from being just starting to, to making it to the top level within a year or so. It takes much longer to do that uh, with the guys. So, wonderful opportunities for, for, for women to uh, to step up from uh, beginning to NRS and then to Pro Tour. And, and do you sense that they, there is that willing amongst the um, the women's peloton to, to seize that opportunity? More and more so. I, 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 the pay fighting classic, which is my uh, event, uh, which I've done for 29 years, the women's race in that has become uh, a better and better event. than now I, I keep people coming along and saying, they're coming to watch the women's race, which is how good the racing is. So, um, 
who used to be, you know, people complained about the, 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 the horse racing might have been a bit negative a few years back, but that's certainly changed, and we're, we're getting fantastic racing. Yeah, 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 exactly. Now, we, we have mentioned about the, the big league in, in Europe, and notwithstanding the importance of the American circuit as well, but... Uh, I guess right now, um, you know, the Vuelta Espana, as we're talking, is, is drawing to its end, but there's still some big stages to come. I mean, uh, we should declare that your one of your other many hats is as uh, a very close uh, associate with the Oracle Green Edge team. But um, with that comes some, some insights that uh, I'm sure you can provide us with, because uh, for Oracle Green Edge, it's been a fantastic race, but they seem to have a knack of enjoying their racing, which seems to be, a, you know, a, a trait of yours. <laughs> Maybe that's why uh, Jerry got me on board. Well, I do have an official title with uh, with uh, Oregon Green Edge. I'm the team mascot. <laughs> so I don't know whether that's a good thing or not. But, uh, but the mascots are usually usually little fluffy, cuddly toys. Yeah, well, they, they haven't put me in an outfit yet. And I'm, well, when, when I got the job, I was about 35 kilos heavier than I am now, so maybe I'll get sacked from that job as well. But look, uh, all jokes aside, you're right, uh, they do have a, a special uh, attitude in that scene. And I, I heard a lot of pros uh, talking amongst each other say, if they had a choice to ride for any team, it would be Oregon Green Edge because of that uh, wonderful um, ambience and attitude that, that, that the team has. But uh, I was very impressed um, with, with them on the Tour de France this year because uh, when all the, the drama happened, they were only three days into the race and they lost you know, three versus four uh, of their best four riders. And it really meant that all chances of, of winning stages and, and that were gone. And yet they never dropped their head. They, they, the, the attitude still stayed positive. They said, well, for the last week, the eight boys will step up, which they did. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but they, they talk about the guys and, and everyone in the team, the Masseurs and the Swannies, the managers, were still positive and, and, and uh, yeah, it was very impressive. And gee, they haven't done well in this uh, um, Ruelta. I mean, it's been a brilliant bike race. One of the best I've seen in a while. And, uh, it's one you want to watch every night, even if it is too late. Yes, um, yes. But uh, to win three stages, um, Chavez has just been what, what a revelation, and he looks like he's going to finish top ten, which is great. Yeah, I mean, like uh, I, I, remember I had the privilege to uh, to do a lengthy interview with him during the uh, the Giro d'Italia, and um, the, the personality of uh, Esteban just came out as well. Of obviously his his story as to how he managed to. Uh, get his contract with the team and it was a credit to Oracle Greenedge that they still signed him up when he was on the comeback from a, a very serious accident that could have uh, very well meant the end of his career and even when he did sign um, there's still no certainty that his career would actually be able to continue. No, that's right. They did take uh, a risk there but they believed in him and it's funny how people forgot how good he was because they well know he you know, won two eleven there and he was going to be the big next big Columbia, and then when he had that terrible accident and showed that to be completely reconstructed uh, everyone forgot about him so um, and he had opportunities they signed him up but uh, they've just re-signed him to 2018 which there was people prepared to pay a lot more money and he wanted to stay with Oregon Green Edge which is pretty special yeah yeah and it's great news that they've just re-signed him as well I hear yeah, until 2018, which, which is really special. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it shows how that team really is uh, backing up on its uh, commitment at the very beginning, even when there were doubters, I'll tell you, including myself, that uh, that they were not... Uh, at, the, at the beginning, people thought, why weren't they trying to get GC riders? But they've always said... We want to get a GC rider when we're ready, when we've got the support staff, support riders and staff to be able to look after that rider. But then they've just started to, to develop within rather than go and chase with the big money somebody who they'd bring in and then they'd have to change the whole organisation around them. 
Yeah, look, I think they've done it right, too, because, you know, they've been pitch hitters. They've fought above their weight all the time, and uh, it's been, you know, but they've just said, no, Hero you know, got them through on the early days. But the good, good lives who just keep coming through and keep, keep, keep them, uh, you know, in, in the news. So now they've got these uh, with the Eight Brothers and with um, Chavez, and uh, a couple of interesting signings that could be happening in the next few days, which could be even uh, even better for the GC future of the team. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we won't hold you up too much longer. I know you've got uh, some big things happening, but uh, I guess we've got to mention well, Caleb. Burger, mate. It's getting cold. Yeah, well, that's the most important. <laughs> uh, I, I, see, I'm glad to hear your priorities haven't changed in life, mate. <laughs> Um, now I've got to ask you. Obviously, Caleb Ewan, who uh, who uh, it was part of his program not to finish the Vuelta, but obviously he had some great racing there, and um, you know he started very well with his stage win very early, and that would have given him a lot of confidence at the back end of a year, which has been pretty uh, challenging but successful for him. Yes, look at you. Well, he's, he's a superstar, but he's only a kid, you know, he's just 21, and um, they were really not sure whether they even put him into the World Cup, because they knew he'd only be in for the first week, but nobody was quite ready, but hey, he proved it that he was, because he won a stage, but even then, we know how good he's going to be, yeah. Yeah. but it's all about management, and, uh, you know, it's going to be, you know, people think, well, he's done this, he's been in the Tour de France next year, I don't think he's ready for that yet, I think it'll be a couple of years before he's ready to step up because he's managed and handled right. You know, he could be potential green jersey winner, you know, stage winner. You know, it's not a classic that I don't think he could win at some stage down the track. But it might be two, three years before those sort of things start happening. Yes, yes. Now, just looking a little bit further ahead, we've got the World Championships coming up in Richmond, Virginia, US of A. Um, Obviously, the Australian team's got a very strong selection there, and uh, it's good to see that uh, Simon Gerrans uh, touched wood. As we're speaking, he's still uh, on his bike, even though he's had another crash in this in this welter. But he's getting there. Um, uh, do, you, do you expect big things from Garrow in, in Richmond? I do. Look, I know he's um, he's still ruined uh, that opportunity of last year, mm-hmm. and uh, the year before that, when he crashed before the world. So it's been a really wants to win. And uh, that second crash in the in the, in the world uh, knocked him around. He face planted, but it, but um, he, he's coming good. So um, the interesting thing for the handle is uh, that Michael Matthews is going so well. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure the two of them will be the protective riders. But that doesn't always work, as we well know. So that, how they manage that handle is going to be uh, one of the big challenges for them because they're both big chances to win. Yeah, yeah. And, and just just out of, I mean, we don't want to talk just about Oracle Greenwich. I mean, at the Vuelta, we've, you know, there are other Australians. Um, you know, Rory Sutherland's there doing a good job for uh, Movistar. We've got Quintana and Valverde racing well. And uh, also, uh, Adam Hansen's continuing his um, uh, his reign of glory in, uh, in, in getting that record of uh, consecutive Grand Tours up. What's he up to? 13,000, right? I think, now. <laughs> Uh, he is an amazing story, and he's such an enigma. No one really knows a lot about him. I've heard with some of the guys who race, you know, in the peloton with him, they ask about him, and I say, well, you don't know a lot. He's friendly enough, but we don't know much about him. He's sort of, he's got all this cloak of, of secrecy about him, because he's got his own businesses, and he, but he sits up at night and plays on a computer and makes more money than he does racing the bike. So, he's an interesting character, but gee, 
they don't come any tougher. And, you know, he came from the mountain bikes and more recreational mountain bikes than anything else and just by accident uh, got picked up by a pro team. Oh, well, it's a fabulous story. It's great. That's that's the uh, that's what cycling's about, isn't it? This patchwork of uh, of personalities and backgrounds of everybody's story, whether it's uh, women's racing, men's racing, juniors, elite, veterans, uh, you you name it. It's uh, it's a uh, it's a whole mixture of uh, of great yarns and stories, isn't it? Yeah, so I've got quite a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you take 99% of them, so we leave 1% oh, for the rest of us. I'm as old as I am, you know, <laughs> when you're as old as I am, you've got plenty of time. Uh, I love them, you know, relating and retelling some of these stories from the old uh, stars, you know. Like Rick, I was only a kid when I, I met him, and sort of a bit of a connection, and, uh, and I remember uh, you know, being a function of Robbie listening to him telling these stories. So, and my dad raced uh, as a pro, so I've got great stories from the 30s and 40s as well so yeah it, it, it's a, a pretty special family and it's wonderful to tell those stories oh well look you're, you're a large part of it and you've contributed so much to it uh, John Trevorrow you're you you are a great person for the sport and thanks for joining us on what a ride and hopefully you'll come back with us again love to Ruth uh, look forward to catching up mate okay thanks very much mate
Welcome back to Water Ride. I'm Rupert Guinness. I'm your host, going solo for this for this episode. Well, you've just had a, a listen to what John Trevorrow, the race director of the uh, Amy Gillett Grand Fondo and Amy's race, the NRS race, a two-day race, had to say about what he's doing down there. Um, and some great insights there, I thought, from uh, the Welter Espana, because he does have an insider's knowledge of the Orica Green Edge team. Um, you know, the owner of the team, Jerry Ryan, the Melbourne businessman, um, you know, went to John Trevorrow. He was one of the first people that, uh, that he went to for advice on how to uh, get the team going, and John's got some great connections. One of the other things we didn't say before was how John was a, had a pivotal role in, the, uh, in Geelong in Victoria hosting the 2010 World Road Race Championships. He actually designed the course, and it was a fabulous course, a fabulous race. Uh, so John does know his stuff, but one thing he actually didn't reveal in that interview was why he's called Iffy. Okay, I should have asked him, but I'm going to give my version of events now. In his day as a racer, he, as I said, he was a fabulous racer, and um, he was also a personality. He still very much is. Uh, but many of his races he would finish, and he'd be always saying, oh, if I could have done this, if I had done this, I had to... Anyway, lo and behold, he became known as Iffy. And he still is today, but uh, he is a champion fellow just as much as he was a champion cyclist. He won those three Herald Sun Tours superbly, you know, and uh, there was a day when, uh, well, I mean, cycling wasn't as predominant as it is now, but it was still very much uh, hotly contested then, and that race uh, has been, uh, well, it's lasted so long now, more than 50 years. So it's a, you know, it is a, it's certainly a hallmark victory for any uh, cyclist to have on their Palmares or their... Uh, uh, list of career uh, results. But uh, we're going to be, uh, you know, as I said, we spoke about the World Championship, Simon Gerrans and Michael Matthews, you know, he's had a great year this, as well. He's been racing over in uh, uh, in the US in preparation for the Worlds. Gerrans, you know, he's been racing, he raced in the Vuelta and uh, he had another crash. He's had, I think, up to six big crashes now this year. He looked like a boxer who just did 12 rounds uh, after his last crash, but he's still smiling, so there's a positive way. Uh, you know, it's nice to see him looking positive. Um, certainly after the welter, he'll have to be resting up pretty quick for a quick turnaround towards the Worlds, but Gerrans knows his stuff. Now, I mentioned uh, earlier that we were going to be talking to uh, my colleague at, the, uh, at Fairfax Media at the Sydney Morning Herald, Daniel Lane. Daniel is, is not just a sports journalist, he's also an author. He's written a number of fantastic books. Uh, he's covered a plethora of sports. He, does, he covers the mainstream sports, sure, but he also really gets into some of the lesser known sports or the lesser supported or recognised sports. It uh, doesn't only just make him a great journalist, but it just gives him a real broad insight as to uh, the world of sport and how, you know, it's no secret... Uh, you know, we can all get blinkered into the sports that we love best, but it's also great to sort of look outside the box and see what else is there and see what we can learn. Uh, I know even just talking to a number of football coaches, uh, Trent Robinson I spoke to, from he's the coach of the NRL Roosters, and Michael Checker from the Wallabies, they're always looking outside at other sports to see whether it's a training method, whether it's a, um, a management method, or whether it's uh, something to do with... Uh, with uh, using technology um, or whatever to try and improve the performances of their players and their teams, not just as for athletic performance, but also to keep them grounded, to help mould them as people for when they do finish their careers, they're still on an even keel and ready to forge ahead in their life. Now, um, so we spoke to Dan, 
and he caught up with McKilly Jones, the uh, two times uh, former uh, ITU world champion, but not only was she a world champion two times at the Olympic distance, she won the silver medal at the uh, Olympic Games in Sydney in 2000. And don't we remember those, uh, those games, fabulous times they were. But to show her, di her diversity and also her sheer grit and athletic ability, she also won the 2006 Ironman Triathlon in Kona, Hawaii. Now Kona's coming up very fast on the agenda, on the calendar now. So, you know, uh, she, uh, just remember that folks, she won that race as well. Uh, and to all those people out there who are getting ready for Kona, good luck. It's going to be a great experience, whatever you do. I had the privilege to have done the race myself a couple of times. And uh, as hard as it is, as challenging as it is, it's a, such a fantastic experience when you feel that afterglow when you cross the line uh, in Kona. It's just fantastic. And the days after, as you're trying to recover, but your spirits are so high. So how, no matter how tough it is out there, just keep plodding away. Don't do yourself any harm, but just keep plodding away because a lot of the win... The personal win for yourself is actually tackling those challenges and forging ahead and just dealing with the stresses of the day because you will be smiling, I promise you, when you get to the end. Anyway, enough of that from me. Let's go and have a listen to what uh, Daniel Lane had to say. And it's a, so, as I said, a very interesting fellow he is and I certainly would recommend you get out there and read his articles in the Sydney Morning Herald and the Sun Herald and other Fairfax media outlets. On McKelly Jones, one of Australia's greatest sports people, if not uh, certainly uh, triathletes. Uh, she's in the US at the moment, forging her career in coaching and everything. But tell us a bit, a little bit about what she was like, because it's 15 years ago. A lot, most Australians would have remembered her in the uh, Olympic Games. Oh, look, I think McKelly Jones is one of the real stars of the Sydney Olympics. She didn't get the gold medal that everyone put that pressure on her to uh, win, and she was competing in a home Olympics and. I reckon the weight of expectation must have been incredible. And it's interesting that um, she won the silver, but she also won the Australian public with the way in which she, can, she performed. It was a real fighting race, as, as I'm sure you would remember, Rick. But, um, yeah, she, she's an outstanding character, outstanding athlete. She's in America. She's, um, she's helping a, um, a young or a, a triathlete, uh, Katie Kelly, to try and uh, qualify for the... Rio Paralympics, and what um, McKeeley is doing, she's acting as the the, the, the partner that helps guide her through um, the race because she does have uh, problems with her, her vision. So she's actually in a position where she may be doing the Olympic course again, which I think is really exciting. Yeah, that's a fascinating story because uh, a lot of elite athletes in, in sports, when they're at the top end of their sports, like what McKelly was, they actually find it quite hard to transfer to a coaching role because they're expected so much excellence from themselves. And yet as a coach, you've got to, uh, you know, you want excellence, but you also have to give some leeway to allow them to sort of uh, find their own way. I mean, uh, did McKelly, uh, how do you think McKelly sort of found that sort of transition? Look, I think, um, you know, just from talking to her, and I... I had, it's the first time I've interviewed McKeeley in about 16, 17 years. So, uh, but from what I do remember of her, she was very generous uh, with her insights and uh, her knowledge. 
So I think for her, and, and I think she's also really enthused about helping the Paralympians um, fulfil their potential and to do great things as well. So, no, she, she's really into it. They, they've uh, been having a bit of a training camp over there in California. And, um, yeah, she's really giving them every opportunity. And, uh, and again, I think that's from that generosity of her spirit and, um, and willingness to share her, her lessons. And she had, I mean, she was a world champion. She was everything you could want to be in triathlon. And, um, and she's passing on all that, that good information and, um, and allowing for them to learn from her own lessons. Now, as we're talking now, Dan, uh, you know, the sun is sort of coming about to set over Sydney Harbour. It's a glorious day and it uh, just brings back memories of uh, the 2000 Olympics and talking of McKellie's, uh, you know, finishing the triathlon there just in front of the Opera House there. I mean, it really was a, a fabulous period, wasn't it? But it still seems like yesterday. It does. Um, look, Sydney's changing uh, a lot, but there's still those remnants of the Olympics. I mean, you do still see bits of the, the blue line from where the marathon was run throughout Sydney. And um, gosh, if you went, if you hadn't been to Australia for 15 years and you went out to the Olympic precinct at uh, Homebush, you'd be amazed by how much it's been developed. I mean, it's a thriving business, uh, community of uh, you know, mixed with residential and, and business. So it has changed, but. Look, Sydney benefited so much from the Olympics. The, the legacy that, it, it, like with tourism, just with people being aware of the city, that beautiful course that you just spoke about for the triathlon, I mean, glorious. I don't think there'd be any other city in the world. I reckon you'd struggle in Paris to enjoy doing a triathlon. You certainly would have to swim in the River Seine there, I can tell you. But not that I've swum there, Dan, but I've seen some bad stuff floating down there, put it that way. I think you, I think you could walk on it. <laughs> Now, Dan, obviously in, in your journalistic career, I mean, you've covered myriad sports, you know, from mainstream sports, from cricket to uh, rugby league, rugby union, um, and you've, you've also, the other side, you've done, you know, some of the uh, sort of lesser-known sports, so to speak, but sports which are trying to struggle to get more recognition. And now we get into this day of uh, where everything seems to be so much professional, well, there seems to be so much more professionalism and marketing. Um, do you think it's getting harder for the lesser-known sports to get their fair cut of the pie financially and with recognition, or is it getting easier? I think um, they're only constrained by the limitations of the officials. I think we've got a diverse population here in, in, well, say Sydney, but Australia, we've got a diverse population. I mean, look, there's kids from... um, from Somalia who, who live in the western suburbs of Sydney and uh, other African nations that are perfect for athletics and basketball. And I think it's really up to um, the officials to get out there and encourage these kids and embrace them and say, we want you to be a part of our, our sport. You're part of the Australian culture. Come and, uh, come and share the skills that you have for it. And I think once they start doing that, uh, really tapping into the community, and not just African, but all kids, um, I, I think then they become more relevant, and I think that's when they can start getting more funding uh, and they can get more sponsors, but it's a matter of being relevant, being proactive, and making people want to come and either compete or support your sport, because, um, you know, the, the minor sports, they, they shine during the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games. I mean, you can represent Australia or Norfolk Island in lawn bowls at the Commonwealth Games. So there's real attract, there's a, a real attraction for people to get involved with sport. Now, I know one of the sports you're, you're close to is boxing. Um, 
you know, Australia's produced some great boxers and, uh, uh, and, and some, some, some boxers with some colourful characters, but I guess that's the nature of the sport. I know in cycling there's a lot of, uh, you know, interesting characters as well, for better and for worse. I mean, you know, they're the sort of sports which um, uh, intrinsically, throughout the history of those sports, they've been professional whether that's been, they've acted professionally is another question. But it's been an interesting, you know, as a journalist, the, the stories there and the personalities uh, I've always found really, really interesting. Is that what you feel? Yeah, I, I agree. Look, one of my early childhood heroes was Kenrick Tucker. I thought he was a great cyclist and uh, a, a real powerful competitor and uh, the way he would explode on the velodrome was really inspiring. But, yeah, I think the, I think the, the colourful characters are the most interesting and often you find... The people that they say are mad and crazy are often the most loyal and, and tremendous people to get to know. I mean, they, they certainly do keep an eye out for you. But, yeah, that tapestry of, of all the different characters in boxing is, is brilliant. You have guys who are white-collar professionals to, you know, uh, garbos or ex-criminals. But they're in there and they, they all work together. They train together. And, and it's a great... Um, it's a great environment for people to go and see the real world and and the connections and the friendships and the rivalries that are forged there are, are legendary. And, I, and again, it's a healthy thing for people to go and do that because you, you're under the one roof and they do have the one dream. Yeah, I've got to put you on the on the pump under the pump here. Uh, is there is there a fight that, and a boxer that stands out for you? Is it, and, and, a, and a fight and a boxer that you've reported on and, and followed. Yeah, that's your favourite. Yeah, look, the the fight that made an impact on me was um, Troy Waters when he fought Terry Norris. Terry Norris at the time it was the um, by the the late nineteen nineties. Terry Norris was pound for pound the uh, most powerful boxer in the the world. Uh, Troy Waters went over there. Everyone thought that he had no hope. I mean, in the opening round, the commentators are saying, after watching Troy cop a volley of punches, the commentators are saying this fight will be have to be stopped soon, and they gave him no chance. And uh, what they didn't count on was that Troy was a pretty tough guy, tough upbringing, and he took the fight to Norris and became the first fighter in, I think it was off the top of my head, I think it was seven years, to knock Norris to the canvas. And um, that changed the whole perception of this kid from from Sydney they all got behind him and uh, and he was Norris was close to being counted out but he rallied and beat the count and uh, unfortunately for Troy he got his second win with that and and he just exploded and and um, uh, despite his best efforts uh, he couldn't put Troy down but he did split his uh, eyebrow it needed something like 33 stitches it was that bad a gash but Troy didn't want to stop and um, which said a lot for his courage. But uh, to me, that fight is always very inspiring because um, he had no hope. You know, no one gave him any hope, and yet he proved you know, there's life in, in the boxing boots and the gloves, and there's always hope. And just lastly, Dan, I mean, uh, we've spoken a lot about this you know, in our times, crossing paths in the office, um, usually bumping into each other because we're getting a bit old and we can't see it beyond our nose. But, um, you know, we've spoken about the, the, uh, you know, this year being the centenary of the, of the Anzacs, you know, in Australia um, from, uh, in World War I. Uh, I remember in the Tour de France this year, the, the, one of the early stages was actually dedicated to, uh, to the Anzacs um, and, uh, and uh, 
you know, we went past a lot of the battlefields in the Somme there and everything like that, and it was really interesting, particularly that night we stayed over. I was staying in a little town where there was, it was just the smallest of towns and they had a little monument um, for, for the soldiers who, who died, and it overlooks the battlefields. You couldn't help but think of the sacrifices that were made. Get to the point. Uh, you've written a lot about this yourself, and you've written some really nice pieces on this, Dan. So, I mean, what's your favourite piece you've written that's really sort of resonated with you, or the subject resonated with you, and the piece resonated with us, the readers? Yeah, there was... Um, yeah, look, I, I find that Anzac tradition and the fact that there wasn't only... Um, like, obviously, anyone who volunteered to do their duty, very courageous, but because we're sports reporters, you do take an interest in those athletes who went over there and... Um, and gave everything. Uh, there's a couple. There were one. It was Ted Larkin, who was the first, uh, well, former Wallaby, and also the first secretary of the New South Wales Rugby League, who was an outstanding bloke. Who was a politician, um, did very well. He was a Labor politician who won a, a seat on the North Shore, which was uh, completely Troy Waters versus Terry Norris type stuff, and so he won that election. And uh, but when the war broke out, um, he told Parliament that he couldn't ask other people to do his fighting, so Ted Larkin uh, who had kids as well, he left his two children behind put on a a uniform and went overseas and uh, he got killed on the the first day at Gallipoli, he got wounded and uh, sadly uh, about 100 yards away from his brother lay dying as well, so it was a a really sad story but it just highlights the waste of it all because um, I reckon Ted Larkin could have been a great Prime Minister, with and, and when you read about him, he was also a policeman who'd walked the beat, um, grew up in Newtown, uh, he had so much to offer, and, and we're really poor for it. And, and very interestingly, one of the things that he uh, mooted all those years ago was a game between the Wallabies and the Kangaroos, and uh, that's going to happen in uh, October. Well, not the Wallabies and the Kangaroos, but Western Suburbs Magpies are going to play Randwick in the hybrid game, and um, so a hundred years. After his death, his dream of that hybrid game being played is going to come to a realisation. Wow, what a, what a uh, testimony to what you know, the legacy that he left. And uh, where will that game be played, Dan? Exactly where and when? It's going to be played in. Uh, look, off the top of my head, I think it's October eight. It's a the, it's a weekend after the, the rugby league grand final, and it will be played at Pertech Stadium at Parramatta. So they'll get a big crowd for it. The few games that they have played around the country have been really well supported. People say it's an exciting game. I haven't been to a, one of these matches yet, but I'm looking forward to having a look because they say it's entertaining and uh, I'd like to see a couple of those rugby league forwards in a line-out. Well, Dan, um, let's, how about we go there together, get a good corporate box going and then have a good verbal sparring session together <laughs> over the rights and wrongs. But uh, thanks very much for being on What A Ride. I know you're busy. You've got a deadline. I've filed already, actually, my story. So the boss is looking over his shoulder now, wondering what the hell we're talking about. Thanks very much for being on What A Ride, and I hope it's not the last time. Thank you, Rupert. I've really enjoyed being on What A Ride, and you're right, my editor's looking at me and thinking Rupert was the smarter bloke of the two of us today. Thank you, mate. Really appreciate it.
certainly enjoyed listening to what uh, Dan had to say. Uh, you know, I could have sat there for a lot longer and spoken to him, but uh, he had a deadline on, he had to meet. Uh, as we spoke, uh, I'd actually met my deadline. My story was in for the Herald. I guess I was happy and uh, probably more relaxed than he was, but uh, it was a pleasure. It was really nice for him to take time out from uh, his pressured moment in the day. Uh, certainly, as I said, the editor was looking over his shoulder, wondering where Dan was, and he wasn't at his desk and uh, I'd taken him away. So I got my knuckles wrapped a little bit there, but I hope you thought it was worth it. I thought it was worth it. It was a great chat. I really enjoyed his insights. Now, um, as I said, Aaron S. Lee is still in the US. He, uh, he's been everywhere down the south. He's from the south, um, but uh, his uh, next mission is to head to Virginia and then to the town of Richmond where the UCI World Road Race Championships will be held in the last week of September. Now, we'll hear more from Aaron at the Worlds uh, later on, you know, as we or during the Worlds and after, and I'm sure he's going to have a heap of stories. We're really looking forward to him coming back um, and uh, hearing more about his travels. Uh, if you've seen him on Facebook or on Twitter, I'd suggest you follow him. He's uh, got some great anecdotes there, some beautiful pictures as well. So get on board. Follow Aaron on Twitter and on Facebook and you can sort of enjoy the ride with him as he heads further into the States and then comes back. But as I said, he one of the things he immersed himself in, besides uh, all his old mates and his haunting grounds where he was born and raised, uh, was the world of BMX. So there you go. He's taken a, a leap of, out of the safety box and gone somewhere where... Uh, he doesn't usually go to. I have to say, I haven't seen a lot of BMX. I've seen it at the Olympic Games, and I've seen how successful it has been and how exciting it is. And uh, I have to admit that uh, even though I've been covering cycling for like 30-odd years, uh, I hadn't really seen 
enough of BMX. And when I had seen it at the Olympic Games, um, it was a big learning experience, not just in the action of it all, but also the skills and the strength that's required. And uh, it's probably no coincidence that a number of our road races, not ours, the world's road races, have BMX backgrounds. So there you go. It's uh, it's a great sport and it certainly can lead to a diverse uh, career on the bike uh, elsewhere in different disciplines. Now where Aaron went to, he, uh, well who he caught up with, it was a, one of their young up-and-coming stars. Well, I guess he would hope to be an up-and-coming star, but he's a very good BMXer anyway. His name is Landon Shake Shively. Sounds more like a boxer. Anyway, he's obviously a very colourful character and um, Aaron caught up with uh, Landon just before the recent BMX Eastern Division Finals in Louisville, Kentucky. See, Aaron's getting around. Anyway, uh, Landon won the first round, but he didn't make it past the semi-finals. But uh, it's not a matter about the results, it's a matter about the ride, the journey. And Aaron caught up to have a chat about BMX, what it means to him, and also where he sees the sports going and where he sees himself going in that sport. Let's have a listen. Aaron Lee here in Minden, Louisiana, and I am joined with one of my high school friends, Barry Shively, and his little man, Landon Shake Shively, who just wrapped up a second-place finish at the Louisiana State Champs last about two weeks ago in New Orleans, and he's about headed this weekend to the Eastern Division Finals in Louisville, Kentucky for the BMX, en route to the National Championships in November. Guys, welcome to What a Ride. Well, thank you. We're excited to be here. It's good to see you. Absolutely great to see you, bud. And, and listen, I, I, and Landon, great to see you. I go back to, to New Orleans and the state championships. Now, you finished second, an impressive, uh, an impressive result for sure. But from what I understand, you had a bit of a, a hip injury going into that race. Yes, sir. Um, the Tuesday before, I was out riding in practice, and I went into a triple wrong and kind of cased and flipped over the handlebars a couple times. But obviously it wasn't a bad enough injury for you to do well at, at state, but it did maybe hinder your performance? Yeah. Well, it dislocated my hip, so it kind of made me a little bit slower in the gate and down the first straight. And who did, now who won the who won that heat, guys? Um, Gage Brown. Is he, a, is he a pretty good mate of yours? Yes, sir. Yeah. You, now, you're riding for a certain team. I, I've been reading a lot on the social media. It's called Pop, Papa Willie? That's correct. Now, talk to me. What's Papa Willie? Well, it's um, the the name actually came from a friend that uh, owns a bicycle shop in Bossier City, and um, he had wanted to do a skate park years ago, and it just never did come about. And um, when my son started riding BMX, we went to a few events and decided we wanted to be part of a team, and there wasn't anything local, so... We put it together and stole his name, and now we've got about 35 riders, Texas, Louisiana, and Arkansas. Fantastic. And, of course, you and I grew up in little old Minden, Louisiana, which most of the world listening to this right now will have no idea where we're at. <laughs> of course, we're about 30 miles east of Shreveport, Louisiana, which, again, most people won't know where that is. So I usually tell people it's about three hours west or east of Dallas, and about six hours or so north of New Orleans? Just about. We're sure. kind of the, uh, the stepchild of Louisiana up here. But, but we grew up, there wasn't a lot of bike riding around here. So, so you got to tell me, Landon, how did you get involved in riding a bike in BMX? Well, we were 
down by the lake, and he was talking about having the best cheeseburger from a BMX track. So I, I, we were talking a little bit about it, and we started to get where we were thinking about doing it. So we went out to the track and watched a couple races, and then we um, just decided to do it the next day. Now, first of all, I got to stop you there. You got to tell me where's this cheeseburger? Where's that track? <laughs> well, as, as a kid, I rode a few times uh, traveling with friends at Bayou City BMX in Bossier uh, or Shreveport at that time, and uh, one of the best burgers I ever ate came off of a grill there. Probably just because I was really hungry, but um, and while we were out camping one weekend, I cooked grilled burgers, and they got to talking about it being the best burger they had had in a long time, and I. Somehow or another, it all came back to the BMX track. Oh, it always comes back to the BMX track. Now, listen, I understand you, your nickname is Shake. you got to give me a little bit of background on this. Where does well, this come from? It comes from because I, I have a tendency to kind of move my head when I start riding with the bike. And they just start calling me Shake because my helmet would move around with it and be like... <laughs> and it's, it's obviously stuck. Well, yeah, it's stuck on there. It's just that... No, but the nickname is stuck. Yeah, then. yeah, yeah. The nickname's always been there since I started riding. Now, you mentioned the, the... We talked about the hip injury. You've got a big race coming this weekend. You guys got a... I'm assuming you're going to drive up to Louisville, Kentucky? Yeah, we're going to meet up with some other teammates tomorrow and travel with them and go up. Um, Eastern Division Finals, big race for you guys. What are we expecting, and how's that hip feeling at the moment? My hips... My hips actually healed up right now, and... Well, I re-injured myself with my knee, kind of wrecked at practice again, but it isn't serious. I can ride, but yeah, the race, it's going to be pretty big. I mean, talking at least 500 motos. Probably. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they won't be that. So, well, be about, be about two, two good solid days of racing. Now, you're racing in the 11X category. You're 11 years old. For I understand, you got a birthday coming up on September 9th. That's right. 12 years old? Yes, sir. Moving up in age group? Yes, sir. <laughs> you excited about it? Kind of. Now, what, anything special going to happen for your birthday? You got, Papa got anything planned for you? Well, we're kind of just going to have a party. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. I like just keeping it low-key, keeping it humble. Um, I noticed your bike over there. Tell me a little bit about your bicycle. What are you riding on? Uh, give me a little bit of a spill on that. Well, I'm riding a Supercross MV V5. Junior plus frame with bombshell cranks and bombshell jet hubs. SLs. Bombshell SLs. Well, yeah, and some fly handlebars. Okay. What kind of pedals you run in there? Uh, I'm riding Shimano. Okay, okay. XDRs. Okay, so you got, are you running uh, road shoes or mountain bike shoes, recess, mountain bike, mountain SPDs? Bike. Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, it's a fantastic-looking bike, and obviously we're excited to, to, to you representing the, the local area. Barry, did you ever think that you'd be in the BMX industry like this and, and be in the sport? Really didn't. Um, I grew up riding the little bicycles, mostly in town, you know, just on the streets, and then I raced motorcycles a good bit as a child, and uh, he had done motorcycles for a little while, and we had to get out of it, and as we did, and he transferred into the BMX. It just kind of blew up on us with the team and 
And I hear you're pretty involved. As a matter of fact, that bicycle store you were talking about earlier uh, said that you're quite a hand on building bicycle wheels as well. I, I do a lot for the guys. Yeah. I do. I, uh, I don't really, uh, I don't, I don't work there for a, a monetary uh, award. I get uh, parts and discounts. Fantastic. Fantastic. So you, you guys look like you're having a great time. We love it. We really do. Is it's, it something you recommend for other families to get involved in? Absolutely. Um, you know, big push in the United States right now is to get kids off the couch, out from in front of the TV, off the video games. And um, Landon is the most dedicated 11-year-old I've ever seen. He practices at least three days a week and then races on Saturdays. So Mondays he does fitness training, uh, running stairs, doing lunges, sprints. Um, Tuesdays we're on the track. Uh, Friday nights we're on the track. And then races Saturday if we're not going to an event like this weekend. Fantastic. Landon, obviously it's a great sport. I, I cover pro cycling, been covering it for years, and, and obviously that a lot includes BMX, which is it's found its way into the Olympic Games, of course. Have you thought – down the road, obviously Rio's a bit a bit out of the question, but 2020 Tokyo, not so much so. Uh, you'd be just about the right age to compete there. Have you thought about the Olympics or what you'd like to do with the sport, or is that a bit too early right now? Well, I've been thinking about the Olympics. Um, that's kind of really my dream about BMX, is getting into the Olympics and getting some medal for the USA. But it, it's going to be a little while because I got school and all that stuff, so... Absolutely, and, and obviously with, with your sport and everything, you talked about, your dad talked about your training, which is, is, is phenomenal. You're keeping the grades up, obviously, to compete. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's always good to hear. Do you have any heroes in the sport, anyone you're looking up to at the moment? Uh, Connor Fields. Oh, absolutely. Have you had a chance to meet Connor? No, sir, but I've been to a couple races where he was at. Well, what do you I... like most about Connor's style of riding? Well, he... Kind of, he just inspires me to get up every day and start getting on my bike. Fantastic. Would you like to do anything after BMX? Have you thought about moving to the mountain bike or, or perhaps the track, the velodrome, or even the road? Really, if I ever stop racing, I'll probably go back to dirt bikes. Okay, so you're big in the, the, the motocross, the actual motorbikes then? Yes, sir. Oh, fantastic. Well, listen, I want to say thank you for stopping by today. Good luck. Congratulations on the state champs. And then good luck this weekend up in Kentucky. Give us a call when you get in and let us know how you go. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, Landon. So great to meet you. Barry, great to see you, old friend. Man, I appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks bud. For the time. Cheers. Some good looking Joe 
Travelling solo, but enjoying the ride. We just were just listening to Aaron S. Lee, my usual partner in crime on What a Ride, brought to you by Australian Broadcasting Media. Uh, he was doing an interview with that Landon Shake Shively, a young BMX rider in the US. Anyway, uh, I really enjoyed that view and uh, that interview. And uh, um, you know, the world of sport is is such a small place, really, isn't it? The world's big, but the world of sport so small and it's great to be able to hear all these different stories from so many various areas of cycling but uh, triathlon and other sports as well anyway so Aaron um, we'll be looking forward to him coming back now as I said earlier in the show another person we caught up with was Phil Anderson Phil Anderson uh, if you don't know he was the first non-European to ever wear the yellow jersey the leaders jersey of the Tour de France in the early 1980s and uh, he was the, obviously the first Australian, 
and he went on to compete in the tour 13 times of which he finished in the top 10 five times and was twice fifth overall. Now we did, when we caught up with Phil we didn't speak to him about racing. Uh, if you caught our last episode, episode 7, we had a good chat to him about the Tour de France and the fallout there and also where he felt uh, the sport was heading to and how Australia's place was uh, fitting into the spectrum of international cycling and we had a little look, you know, obviously about the Vuelta España and the World Championships to come. But for this episode, we're going to take a turn here. We're going to turn right and we're going to go down the path of cyclotourism. Now, Phil Anderson does have his own uh, cycling tours company, Phil Anderson Tours, um, and he's had it going for a number of, uh, number of years now, and it's not just about taking tours to the Tour de France. He goes to other uh, races as well, and even next year he's taking a, a river cruise in Europe, which uh, in this upcoming interview he speaks about. But when we have a chat, we don't just talk about uh, his tours. We talk about the industry generally, um, and, and, and how different uh, tours are tailored for different interests and needs and desires and abilities, obviously, and obviously tastes as well in wine and food, etc. So, uh, you know, Phil was, you know, gave some great insights there. So let's have a listen to see what Phil has to say about this, this industry. And uh, I can highly recommend, if you want to get on board, he's, uh, he'll tell you his details, how to make contact. And if you want to be on board with any other uh, uh, touring companies just get onto uh, Google and f do a, a search for cycling tours. Australia has a large number of them, uh, and as I said, they're tailor-made to suit any interest that you have, or most interests, within reason anyway. Anyway, let's have a let's ha catch up with Phil and uh, hear what he has to say about it all. Well, welcome back to What a Ride. I'm Rupert Guinness, and with me again on the show is Australia's first ever yellow jersey wearer in the Tour de France. He finished in the top 10 five times from 13 participations. I don't have to give any more clues or anything about who this guy is. His name is Phil Anderson. But one thing about Phil that a lot of people may not know is that he also has his own company going since he's retired called Phil Anderson Cycling. He started in 1998 and uh, I guess if anyone who's seen Phil knows that he's probably just as lean, not mean, but lean, as lean as he was when he was a cyclist, as a racing cyclist. But I guess you have to be to take these touring groups around, is what, is, which is what he does. Uh, Phil, welcome back to What A Ride and also just tell us a bit about what got you into the industry of cycling tourism. Oh, Rupert, um, yes. Well, I think it was in uh, 97 years prior, I was uh, over at, uh, in France as working for uh, Nike, the apparel company, and uh, they were just starting to get into cycle sport. And they were the official um, yellow jersey provider. You know, all the different jerseys had the uh, the swoosh on there. And um, so I was over there hosting uh, some special guests of theirs, which was flying from around the world. And we'd uh, give them hospi hospitality. Most of them were from America, so didn't understand the sport. They were just getting into it, as I said. And, and so uh, I was there holding the hand through some of the um, different uh, aspects of the uh, tour. And we hosted those guests. Um, you know, it was a four, four five-star um, uh, hospitality packages we put, we uh, we gave them. And uh, 
it was it was uh, wonderful, and they, they those uh, guests went away uh, having had a, a fantastic experience. And um, looking around after that, uh, I thought that there was nothing else out there on the market like that. There was uh, a few companies out there, but it was more they were more sort of uh, driven for the not the backpacker market, but the sort of two three stars. There was nothing really of uh, great quality accommodations and. and uh, packages together so I thought there was space to get into something like what we offered uh, Nike but um, yeah more for the general uh, consumer so yeah I started doing uh, tours and yeah those early days uh, 98 was my first tour and um, it was like a two and a half week package so it was very long and we were chasing the race every day um, there was some of our guests brought uh, bikes, but there was barely time to ride the bike because we were just uh, so busy chasing the race. I think we were um, following you around. We were, we were pretty uh, pretty close, but you can imagine how, what your program's like when you're over there with your journalist hat on, trying to fit time to uh, to ride. Um, yeah, it was, it was very difficult. So, yeah, things have uh, morphed quite a bit uh, to what we we um, deliver today. Yeah, I was just saying to someone the other day about how the, how the tour has changed from, you know, from my perspective and how there was a time where you used to be able to sort of uh, drive a, drive along on the course and just follow the breakaway, toot, toot and go past the peloton, find a nice little place to have a bit of lunch, see the break go past and think we better ask for the bill and then rejoin the race. It was a pleasant afternoon, but now everything's become so hectic and so big. And I, I, from your point of view as well, I guess you've seen that as well. It's 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 just so busy. You almost have, have to have a a military-style strategy for each day, don't you, Phil? Yeah, well, you, you have to have a, uh, a reasonably tight um, running seat, and uh, we try and dovetail with certain elements of the event uh, rather than chase it every day. Like, we used to see the race sometimes three, four times a day, and <laughs> it was just exhausting. Uh, so, so now we usually see it every day. Sometimes we miss a day, we might go ahead. Uh, but yeah, still staying in excellent uh, properties, usually um, two or three nights on each property. And yeah, one day we'll, we'll ride to the top of the mountain, just wait for the event to come come up and, and pass us or the, the uh, finish. But but it's not all about being at the start or the finish. In fact, those those particular elements of the race, while well, it's critical for uh, the results, uh, sometimes the best experiences you have are out in the middle of nowhere. You know, in a small little village where there's you know there's not too many people, but uh, you know, and you, and you sit down, have a meal, and you listen to the locals and they tell you about the last time the tour came through this place you know it was some time after the war and they're so excited and proud that the event would even come to their their corner of France mm. and uh, you know eventually you know you'll go outside and, and uh, you know the race or you can feel the race coming in you know you sort of you know, building, and you know, this eventually you see the helicopters coming over the hill, and and uh, and yeah, and, and it comes by. It's not just about a, a ten second package package. Mm. It's about uh, you know the build up, the emotions, you know, the, the, the crowd, the, uh, the other people there. It's, it's, yeah. it's become a global event, and you can be in a, in, in, a, in a very isolated place in the middle of nowhere, and there'll be people from all around the world there. 
Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting how it's it's very much become a uh, cycling tourism has become a, a boom business in many ways uh, around not just the Tour de France but other bike races. And I know that there are other companies that that uh, that are out there as well. But I guess there's a, a number of companies, as you said, that cater for different markets. There will be some who are sort of the backpacker style ones. There'll be some who want to do every stage, and there's others who who want to say like uh, with yours, go to the four or five star places, stop and take a breather and enjoy the environment and the people and the food and the wine around them. Yeah, well, every, co- every, every company has a, a point of difference, I think. Uh, you know, from, from one tour to another, you know, we visit uh, tours, different events and different ends of the tour. tour we might be have a tour in the Pyrenees where we might be riding more like we did this year. Uh, and we'll actually wait for the, for the race to come. So we'll... We were there for five or six days before the race even arrived in the south of France. You know, the race when we started was, um, you know, up, up in Normandy. We were, you know, we arrived in Barcelona, so we were down in Spain and, and doing all the climbs in the Pyrenees. Eventually, the race arrived. So the race like that, where we only had like um, three or four interfaces with the tour when it finally arrived down there, to when, you know, a week later we had another tour in the Alps. And, um, you know, in that way, and then, you know, we were, we were seeing the race on most days, you know, critical points in the, in the event. And, you know, we were there screaming for, for Richie and uh, his supporting room on the on Alpe d'Huez. It was just, a, it was just like a, uh, a huge party up there on, on uh, Alpe d'Huez this year. So, yeah, each tour is, is, is different than the next. And, uh, you know, different, different providers offer different... Uh, different elements and I guess you know for the for the guests or for the clients it's, uh, you know they should ask questions and, and find out uh, exactly what they're going to be getting and if that suits what they what they're looking for I guess I've got to ask you the simplest question Phil is but uh, when you see the race go past do you, do you miss the race do you do you miss not being in the peloton and 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 the, and the challenge of the tour and the competitors is it still in here oh, look when, when you see the Tour de France whether it's on television or you're beside the road, you're seeing, you know, the end result after a lot of blood, sweat and tears and, and uh, you're, you're seeing it, the, the end product. And it's, uh, you know, it's all very well rehearsed. And, you know, everybody's fit and normally it's great weather and, uh, you know, it's the pinnacle of the season. But uh, behind that, there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears and, and uh, a lot of effort that's got into getting to that um to that to that point in politics as well, you know, within within the team or or um, you know the team getting selected, and so um, you know there's there's some things I do miss, uh, you know, the camaraderie, the feeling of success, you know, when you're in a winning team or somebody wins a stage from your from one of your mates, um, you know, there's some elements you do miss, but I certainly don't miss all the hard work and, and uh, training and preparation that. That goes into it. <laughs> I, I guess in many ways, though, with the groups that you have, whether it's at a at, at a stage race or a Tour de France or a Grand Tour or even or even the classics, wherever you go, the, the group you have still has to have the same dynamism where it, where it can get on together. You know, you've got different personalities and you've got different riding abilities. How do you how do you sort of manage all that, Phil? Particularly with you being the uh, I guess the, the the team leader per se or the uh, the group leader. Yeah, uh, well, you're right, Root. I think the success of the group really comes down to the, how the, the synergy of, of the guests and how they all get on. And, and um, you know, you never really know until you get on the ground. And we, you know, we cater for 
people who don't ride, we cater for people who do ride, people from, you know, everywhere in between. Uh, so we split the different groups and we know we have a long, faster uh, group and a uh, slower, shorter ride group. And then you have people that don't ride at all. So, uh, yeah, we try and cater to what everybody uh, wants. Uh, some days we'll all go out together and then we'll stop for coffee and then we'll, we'll uh, split because, um, you know, someone to uh, go and hammer up a hill uh, and other times, you know, they just want to uh, take it easy and wait at the bottom of the mountain and wait for the race to go to come through instead of uh, waiting on the top. So, yeah, you just got to listen to what the guests want and, you know, because we're, we deal with small groups, it's, it's a lot easier than having... You know, 40 or 50 people in a big coat, it's, it's difficult to um, split and dice. So, yeah, we just, um, yeah, listen to what people have, have, what they're looking for. I'm speaking with Phil Anderson, the former cyclist, Australian cyclist, and the uh, owner of Phil Anderson Cycling, and uh, who conducts a whole lot of tours, and uh, they sound like great fun and great excitement. Uh, Phil, um, I guess, you know, it is a success story in, in many ways, but I guess not everything can go right on, on a tour. Have, have, you've got to give us a little bit of an insight. What can go wrong? Perhaps what has gone wrong? Have you lost anybody on one of your tours? <laughs> It's a lot easier now with the um, technology of, you know, everybody's got mobiles. Um, mapping now with GPS makes it uh, a lot easier. You know, in the years gone by, we'd have to print out little maps and give everybody maps. And, and uh, you know, as, as a group leader, you'd be stopping every 10 or 15 minutes to look at the map because it's not like here where you've got sort of one row between uh, A and B. Over there, you've got a whole network of, like, thousands of roads and we always try and find the smallest possible road which is which is of a bitumen surface um so because they're most the most pleasant to ride on off the off the beaten track um so yeah it was very difficult navigating in those days but now with gps it's, it's a lot easier um but yeah things that can go wrong can have uh, an accident somebody can fall off and uh, but uh, unfortunately we usually have vehicles right there so we can um, you know, attend to the to the um, to the bike, or you know, somebody's got a graze. Attend to, to first aid uh, directly, but um, you know, I think we. I don't, I don't know. We, we, um, sometimes you can have uh, issues with rooms, but uh, you know, where, where people have a have a have a domestic, and uh, suddenly you've got a uh, situation where you've got to get an extra room. <laughs> things like that which yep. are really out of our hands but uh, you know we, we try and uh, solve solve problems on the ground but you know I have a, a good um, staff that I draw on and uh, you know if it's beyond my um, my abilities usually I'll lean on, on one of my uh, one of my teammates to uh, to come in and assist so you, pro- you provide relationship counselling you're, you're like the, the, the real Dr Phil <laughs> 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 you are exactly, exactly. <laughs> hey Phil um, obviously like a lot of your tours aren't just about going to Europe I know you do have a lot in, in Australia as well but I understand next year you're going to have a, 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 a tour of, with a certain difference a cruise is that right? Yeah river cruise uh, mm. river, yeah it starts in Budapest and uh, and uh, goes up the Danube and, and uh, ends up in Amsterdam actually so it's, it's a, uh, a river cruise which I think it's like uh, eighteen hundred kilometres along the river, and so you um, you climb on the boat. Uh, I think it's um, mid mid June, and uh, you unpack your things in your in your cabin, and which is different than 
than uh, my usual tours where you're changing every couple of days. And uh, yeah, so you're sleeping on the boat, you're riding a little bit uh, during the day, not long rides, possibly 60, 80 kilometres, uh, and not even every day, because you, you want to enjoy uh, the the, uh, the elements of the cruise, which, um, you know, which, which they always offer, which is, you know, daily sort of, um, you know, trips to the different castles. You always see those those uh, mystical yeah. um, structures up on the the uh, sides of the of the uh, river. So yeah, there's monasteries and um, uh, breweries, which I'm always interested in in uh, going for the tasting. Yeah, uh, there's lots of things to offer on the uh, on the cruise. And of course, it's it's good for couples because. While uh, not everybody wants to ride, uh, it's, it's sometimes difficult to get that uh, that lead pass. Yeah. Something like this, uh, there's, there's plenty to offer um, uh, for, for everybody. Okay, and um, look, uh, and, and for your for your tours, where where can people go to 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 uh, to find your tours, Phil? Geez, uh, this is a, a real infomercial, isn't it? Look, <laughs> 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 Phil Anderson Cycling uh, gets you uh, on our webpage and at uh, yeah, our tours, you know, to the Giro or to, to the, um, you know, next year, I think we're going to the Vuelta and, of course, the River Cruise, it's all, um, it's, it's all, all lead you that way. Okay. Now, the other thing I've got to ask you, I've, I've, I've heard about this show called the Gruppetto Show. Um, now, c- c- tell us a bit about the Gruppetto show, and, and you know where can people see it now? What's it about? I mean, someone was telling me that it's a little bit more light-hearted. Yes, look, it's a comical look on cycling. There's uh, not too much uh, seriousness to it. Uh, it's very light. Um, it's really meant to give a, a, a good laugh. Like there's quite a few uh, different strings of. of um, you know, cycling media out there now, and uh, this is meant to be something which is uh, you know a bit more sort of a bit more like uh, you know one of those uh, footy shows or uh, you know where, where we uh, we look at certain aspects. It might be commuting, like we just had someone on the cycling across um, championships down here in Melbourne, which is kind of the latest rage um, for cycling at the moment. Uh, yeah, so it's it's. Uh, it's just something which we're we're uh, with Channel Thirty One, which is a um, network down here in uh, in Victoria, and uh, it can be got online as well. In fact, we've already got three out there, so it's just uh, the group that I show. If you look at that, uh, if you just Google that or go on YouTube, um, yeah, you'll get a, the the, uh, the feel of it. But it's it's something I, I really enjoy doing, and it's uh, yeah, I think it's a space which. Um, which uh, there's room for, and so yeah, very excited about it. And I see you've got an, uh, an interesting co-host in uh, former track world champion team pursuer Billy Joe Shearsby. Yes, yes, from the '93 uh, World Championships. That's right. So um, yeah, he's a uh, comic in, in himself. I think he should be in stand-up. In fact, I think he has done some stand-up. And, and there's uh, lots of hidden talent there, and uh, he can even play the ukulele, which is uh, surprising, really. See, maybe. <laughs> there's a lot of jokes we could say about that, Phil, but uh, unfortunately we haven't got time. But if you could just say like where we can get it, where the show is, Gruppetto, how do you, can you spell it, gruppetto.com? Yeah, it's uh, just Gruppetto, so that's uh, G-R-O, uh, sorry, G-R-U-P-E-T-T-O uh, show, Gruppetto show. So, uh, okay. yeah, if you just, if you just uh, uh, 
uh, Google that or YouTube it, and uh, yes, come up. We've got uh, we've got three up at the moment, and that'll they'll continue to roll out. We're doing live uh, recording in Geelong um, in the in in bars coming up on Thursday. So you know, usually it takes us a week or so to um, to cut it up and, and, and put it out there. But yeah, we're, we're looking forward to. Um, yeah, continuing. Oh, well, that's great. Well, look, uh, sounds like you're really enjoying uh, cycling in the uh, post-race, uh, uh, post of your post-race career. It's, it's great to hear you uh, really getting involved and uh, hear a lot of t- tales from people who've been on your tours. They love them. And, uh, and it's great that you got into the Gruppetto show now where you can actually have a laugh. And I think uh, everything gets so serious these days, it's great to be able to have a laugh and occasionally laugh at yourself. Well, thanks, Rufus. Um, I'm looking forward to, um, to following your exploits as well. Uh, I really enjoyed the, uh, the little vignettes you did from the uh, Tour de France. <laughs> uh, that was great. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to, uh, to, to the show as well. Okay, Phil. Well, you take care, mate. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Rufus. You're listening to What a Ride with Aaron S. Lee and Rupert Guinness. I'm Rupert Guinness, driving the bus solo this episode uh, we've already been, we've been hearing from Aaron obviously in the show he's calling in from the United States he'll be back on the show soon just then we we're just listening to Phil Anderson talking about cyclotourism or cycling touring uh, whatever way you want to call it but it's about having a holiday with bikes going to not just races but also to see countries and experience different cultures you know it just goes to show how good cycling really is it's not just about racing and competition and you know you really can enjoy it and you can get to see areas of the world that you don't necessarily get to see in a car. And uh, certainly when you do, if you are in the same areas of cars, you're going a bit slower and you can obviously see a lot more and take it all in. Anyway, uh, it's a good note to uh, sort of get towards the end of our show for this week because uh, as in Australia we're heading towards, well, we started spring and we're heading towards summer and you get that uh, feel for what you're going to do for holidays. And I guess if you're in... The Northern Hemisphere in Europe and the United States, as, as winter is closing in, you may be thinking about what you're going to do next spring uh, and planning your holidays as well. It's certainly been a great... Uh, I've enjoyed this episode of What a Ride. Um, I've got to say, though, it's uh, really looking forward to the weeks to come. You know, sport never ceases to, to stop and it never seems to slow down at all. Just as you think you get into the end of one season, you're starting another in another sport and quite often... There's several seasons all at once with several sports together. I'm really looking forward to the Rugby World Cup. The uh, Wallabies are going to be opening their World Cup campaign against Fiji in Cardiff on September 23. The World Cup actually begins in England uh, on September 18 on, the, on a Friday when England play Fiji. So the Fijians are going to already have a game uh, up their sleeve before they take on the Wallabies, but it'll be interesting to see how they've come out of that first game against England. Uh, England, Australia, Fiji, Wales and Uruguay make up what they call the Pool of Death. It's the most hotly contested of the four pools in the World Cup. We've got uh, only two spaces, or two spots for the quarterfinals. In that uh, pool, uh, including Wales, there's three top-tier nations with Wales, England and Australia. So one of those countries will miss out but you never know, possibly two, because the Fijians, two times quarter-finalists, could produce a surprise and force another one of those top-tier nations out. You just never know. World Cup rugby is a certainly different beast than uh, natural, normal test rugby. You've, uh, to win the World Cup, you've got to 
win seven games back to back and that's a fairly hefty toll on any squad. Squads are 31 players each but uh, rest assured every one of those 31 are used in some form or fashion. They have to uh, you know, switch teams around to you know, meet up with the uh, program that's ahead of them and also to uh, cover for injuries that are inevitable in a contact sport like that. Also, I've got to say, I wish Jared Hayne all the best over in the United States as he continues his remarkable story and, his, in his case, a remarkable career, a new career that's just embarked, that he's just embarked on as the coach of the San Francisco 49ers was quick to remind him of when he told him or when he gave, when he gave him the news that he was on the 53-man roster. Uh, it's interesting to note that you're not always on that roster once you're named on it either because the coach can chop and change uh, a few players as, as the season unravels week by week. So for Jared Hayne, and he knows it better than anyone, the challenge is still just as big as it was when he left Australia. But he's that sort of... Uh, he's got seems to have the right mentality. I don't know him very well. I know that uh, the journalists have been over there. Um, you know, Michael Chambers from Fairfax Media, he's been uh, following the story day in, day out. So maybe we can get a, you know, a call in with Michael for the next episode. It'd be good to see how he feels about it now that uh, uh, now the season will be up and going by the time our next episode is up and going. Anyway, if you're out there, uh, if you're in Sydney or if you're in Australia, gearing up for spring, we wish you all the very best uh, as you get out there. Just get out off the sofa, enjoy what the world has to offer out there, not always just indoors. Speaking of which, I'm indoors right now, so I think I might just get outdoors on this beautiful, sunny Sydney spring day. In the meantime, all the very best. Stay safe. I hope you really enjoyed this episode of What a Ride. Thanks very much for all your feedback. If you have any news or views or any requests, just let us know. Um, you can follow us on iTunes, on Facebook, and uh, we put all the links out there anyway. Myself and Aaron S. Lee, uh, you can contact us through social media. I'm on Facebook and, uh, and Twitter, so our doors are open. Thanks again and stay safe and enjoy the ride. What a ride it is.
Just like heaven